Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment to follow it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Today's guest is international best-selling author Hugh Howie, who was a guest on this podcast in early 2022 after I'd finished reading Wool, the first book in his Silo series. I've now just completed reading Sand and has just published Across the Sand, which I'm looking forward to discussing with him. Welcome back, Hugh. Thanks for having me back. Pleasure to be here. Great. Yeah, it's um, it, it's really amazing with your, I guess it's um, your sci-fi thriller. It's I would originally called it, you know, looking into it, just dystopian, but it's um, it's not. It, it is, but it isn't. So I want to be able to, at least from my perception of it, and I've been reading a lot, keeping up with my podcast, so I read all over the uh, spectrum right now. So your books allude to a not-too-distant future, never stated, but it's it's knowable, um, as compared to a lot of dystopian, which goes way in the future or has some type of a real distaste at least in, in my mouth on a lot of times. So how is it like, why is it you landed here? Maybe it's just because these are the books I've read and I've, I've missed the other 30 books you've written and other aspects of science fiction, but specifically these, how did you arrive at this form of, of thriller science fiction? It's funny, Sand and Wool both have um, very similar uh, origins in that they were, they, they came about from just observing something in the contemporary world that I wanted to uh, either satirize or exaggerate or or uh, philosophize about, um, which I, those are the kinds of origins for the stories that I get most involved in personally. Mm-hmm. Um, in the case of Wool, I was fascinated by how much um, uh, our view of the outside world is determined by the screens that filter news of the world to us. So instead of going out and seeing the world with our own eyes, <clears throat> we watch 24 hour news or social media streams or uh, you know other other types of filtered media content, and then determine or make a, a determination about what the world is like, rather than going out exploring it for ourselves. And that was the that was what started the whole uh, wool and, and silo series. Mm-hmm. Um, for sand, I was watching um, the war in Syria break out years ago, and the amount of bombing and devastation to that town it was just incredible. The, the people who stayed there fascinated me. And then I realized the, the idea that you could just walk out of your hometown and go to safety sounds so simple from a distance. But if you're in the situation, packing up and leaving your home with your family and where your possessions are, like even having bombs rain down around you might not be motivation enough to go through with that. And we've seen this throughout history, like really terrible situations where an innocent populace is being terrorized mm-hmm. and the choice to stay home wins out over the choice to walk somewhere else. At the same time, we had a lot of uh, um, migrants moving out of Africa, uh, other parts of Africa. We had migrants in uh, Central and South America trying to get to the U.S. And so I, I really wanted to write from the perspective of a people that are having their lives made miserable by outside forces and what that does to a, a large family, some of whom think we need to leave and go someplace better and some who think we, we should stay. And that was, that was the basis of sand. And it hasn't become any less, that question has not become less interesting to me over the years. If anything, over the seven or eight years since I wrote sand, the questions become uh, more fraught and more fascinating. And yeah. just this last year, I released the sequel uh, Across the Sand, which looks at the question even deeper. It does. And there's a few things of how I perceived it as, and which I'm interested in talking about, because what you just said there is like, wow, okay, that obviously explains what is it you did. But it also seems to be like superstition versus technology as well played a role in that because you've got, there's no sense of religion necessarily, but definitely I see superstition in the people that live in, in the, in the dunes, in the sand and this, you know, the technology that 
for them, it becomes a means of superstition, which they, which blocks them from going any further. It's just, this is what you do when you dive. This is how you do it. And they don't go past that point. You just have this very rudimentary sand divers, but then you've got these nomads that have, they've, they've gone past these boundaries, but they have them, then they've set themselves their own boundaries that you can't have, you can't be, you know, the stick people, you know, like they refer to them. You can't be in one place. You have to keep on moving and, and not, it's like for every solution there, there's a problem that an inherent problem with it. And it's just from both sides. And it's, if you can cover that a little bit there, cause I was fascinated with that when I fired, when I was getting towards the end, like, wow, just seeing how it's like, you see it so much right now on planet earth for that sure type of stuff, but just how you address that. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot going on here. Um, uh, for me, the superstition, I, when you are subjected to forces outside of your control, which is what's happening to the people who live in the dunes, you know, they're, they're being buried by the, um, the detritus from the mining that's happening over the horizon. And again, looking at the Middle East, um, one of the great books I've, I've ever read, I won the Pulitzer years ago, called The Prize, about the history of oil exploration, talks about how when we found oil in the Middle East, we were going in and devastating economies and political systems because of a material resource that they couldn't even use yet. Like we, they had no idea what was happening, only that people were coming and offering a lot of money. And so their lives were upended because of an empire in the United States that was like inconceivable to them, just so far away. You know, very little travel was happening between those regions at the time. Mm -hmm. So just imagine like a foreign entity creating all this chaos in your world because of something that they need that you don't even know about, didn't even know it was there, you've been living on top of. And that's similar to what's happening in sand. And superstition, when you're, when the world doesn't make sense, it's human nature to try to make sense of it. Right. And if we're not aware of the, um, the physical forces in play or the outside agencies doing the acting, um, we're going to create some kind of correlation, whether there's causation or not. And that's the foundation of superstition. And I think we look down on superstition, but I've learned not to because um, what superstition to me just highlights a very human desire to have agency and control over the world and to understand it. And all it points really to is a temporary ignorance of, of causation. Um, where superstition can be bad is when we find out, okay, here's the causation. Now we have an answer. And if you still stick to your superstition afterwards, that can be a problem. But I don't blame the people in sand. Their superstitions to me make complete sense. And it's as it's the best that they can do to understand what's happening mm -hmm. in the world around them. And the other thing you touched on is this people who are constantly in motion versus people who sit still and both, it creates problems for both of them. Right. Um, I mean, this, that kind of dichotomy goes back to uh, the big enders and little enders of Gulliver's travels. Uh, Swift was making fun of Protestants and Catholics. Like if you become so dogmatic that you're, that you create inflexible rules those rules are going to break you. And um, I, I think compromise and having an open mind to the benefits and costs of any system is a better way to live than having strict dogma that really traps you when, when conditions change. And so that's what I'm really touching on with those two people. And again, you can read these books without knowing any of that stuff, but it's what keeps me entertained as I'm writing them. Yeah, no, it's, it was amazing when I, you use haiku as well, which is a Japanese form of, of uh, poetry, of storytelling, of, of uh, writing. So how did, I mean, because sand didn't have it, but across the sand you use, you go into at the beginning of each section, you've got your nomad king and then old cannibal haiku. So what was the, like, the origin of that? Because that was new to me. Yeah, so the cannibals are mentioned in the first book, but, you know, a bit of a spoiler, but in, in neither one of these books do they make, uh, you know, an appearance or an impact. No. It's just more of a, a boogeyman and a, and a fear that keeps people from um, going west. Yeah, from from leaving their home. So I, I loved. I just love when I thought of Cannibal Haiku. I don't know how it came to me, but I just loved the <laughs> the weird mix of one of the most beautiful things you could think of a haiku, simple and elegant, 
and um, uh, very contained, and cannibalism, which is the opposite of all of those things. You know, it's messy, gory, it's taboo, and combining those, and then calling it an old cannibal haiku, like these are ancient and everyone should know them, like uh, like they're Buddhist koans or something. I, I just yeah, every love- soul can spawn dozens more. Every death can feed whole tribes. Yeah. <laughs> old, old cannibal haiku. <laughs> so, <laughs> and this took on a life of its own because my editor, David Gatewood, is one of the funniest humans I've ever met. And when he started sending me edits back and forth, he started writing his own cannibal haiku in uh, the margins just to tickle me. And some were so funny that I was like, we have to create a Twitter account just for cannibal haiku. So we did. Really? And, yeah, um, cannibalism, you call it. We prefer the term recycling. <laughs> yeah, that was one of David's. <laughs> cannibalism, you call it. We prefer the term recycling. Yeah. It's amazing that that works perfectly as a haiku. Yeah. We actually love that so much. He wrote a children's book in the form of tweets called 10 Little Cannibals. And on each, after each tweet, there's one fewer cannibal, you know, because they're hitting <laughs> each, each other. And I loved it so much, we created a children's book. Uh, got it illustrated, and it's going to come out th- uh, in 2023. Oh, so wow. I don't know if there's any demand for <laughs> children's picture books about cannibals, but that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So then, so the the spark of having that that section intros, how because that you haven't I haven't seen it in the other books, so your two little parts, you know, your parts as you name the parts, which is fine. But then you have these two little short fun things. Are they counterpoint to the, since the severity of what they're about ready to read or something or. Yeah. And it it also helps create the mythos of these different um, actors involved. So the first sand book came out in five parts that I uh, published independently as a individual book. And then they were linked just in story. So was that KDP very, that you did in, those, in, the first ones? Yeah, KDP yeah. And, and Crazy Race. There were paperback versions as yeah. well. And um, so I broke up when I, I wrote the second book for a publisher. They wanted to publish it as a single book. So I still wrote it in five sections and had the same illustrator, oh, Ben okay, Adams. Yeah. So the putting something in between just breaks it up so it doesn't feel like a new chapter. It feels right. like, okay, I'm, I'm being pulled out of the story. I'm giving something different to read. There's an illustration here, and now I'm back in the story. That was as much as I could do to make it five separate, feel like five separate uh, books. Right. I get it. And the third book coming out this next year is going to be published as five separate books. I'm going to go back and do that on my own because I just enjoyed the serialized version of that, like one coming out after the other a few weeks apart. Okay. So yeah, we'll get back to that whole thing of the – Self versus indie versus traditional. We'll get that a little bit later on. I want to keep on sure. exploring what we talk about, you know, these books here. So now I can't help but see a bit of a, you know, your, the concept of morality and integrity from the various perspectives, because, you know, one man's savior is another man's devil, you know? So you've got two disparate entities each from their own viewpoint, they're totally right in what they're doing and why they're doing it, seemingly, although I'm, I'm definitely in favor of the, uh, the sand people as the protagonists and not the, the city folk. Yeah, But sure. is there something on that too? Like you're just, what you're communicating there on the morality, integrity of, because you see that so much in society now and you've seen it for eons, you know, just that, you know, and you see it heavily right now with Democrats versus Republicans, you know, both are absolutely correct in their perspective and the other guys are absolutely wrong, but it doesn't work like that. When you get, when you get exterior to it and look at it and go like, wait a minute, you know, you don't always have that God's eye view of the world. So you kind of like assume that viewpoint with doing this thing, both sides, but is there something you're trying to accomplish on that? Yeah. I mean, the, the hope is that you can, you know, the, what fiction is so good at is is broadening our circles of empathy. Like if I read, you know, the, the Hunger Games trilogy, I spend, you know, uh, weeks of my life Im- immersed in the world of a, a teenage girl who's going through things I've never gone through. And if it's written well, you 
can feel things that you mm-hmm. wouldn't feel otherwise. You would never put yourself in that situation. And fiction, good fiction, does a great job of that, of helping us see the world through someone else's eyes, feel the world really from their point of view. And the, I think the next the next step from that is taking despicable characters and making them uh, not likable, but at least relatable. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can understand what their motivations are. Something I tried to do with um, Bernard and Wool, my main bad guy there, and with uh, a bad guy named Walter in my in a, a space opera series I did uh, years ago. And with this, I tried to do it with a whole kind of culture. The the bad guys in sand, you know, the, the idea with the, with across the sand is to tell the story from their perspective as well. Mm-hmm. And it's something that's always fascinated me is like people that we vilify. A lot of them have families. They have children who love them. They, you know, have loved ones uh, who fall asleep with them every night and give them a kiss before bed. And we just, we, like you were pointing out, we we really make the other side of the devil. We don't just say that they're wrong, but they're evil. Right. And those people think that they're doing something for the right reasons and the other side's evil. And obviously both sides can't be right. Uh, there's There's a paradox there. And I think the simplest resolution to a lot of those paradoxes is that both sides are wrong and, and the reality is a lot, a lot messier. But there's something about our biology that we really want to put people we disagree with into a box of moral depravity so mm-hmm. that we can not just discount their idea, but discount their entire existence. And we lose a lot when we do that. And um, this book is kind of uh, across the sand is, is kind of an indictment on that that moral philosophy. Yeah, it absolutely is. And it's, um, it's much more subtle than a lot of science fiction has, has been, you know, in, in what you're communicating there. And it definitely, but it's very clearly stated, you know, if you reading the whole book like that, it's, especially when we get to the end, you know, that final, one of the final scenes with Anya. And know. that was very personal for me. I, I have a very uh, uh, complicated relationship with my, my dad who passed away a couple of years ago, but uh, I just worshiped him for most of my life. And um, he and I were best friends and I, I, you know, followed him around like a puppy dog for, you know, over 40 years. And, you know, we, we sailed across oceans together. We had all kinds of amazing adventures together. And, but it wasn't until, you know, I was in my forties that I looked at the course of his life and the decisions that he made and the way he treated people and talked about other people and realized he wasn't a good guy. And that was really hard for me to square with my adulation of him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the, so across the sand, with that perspective, you can understand how autobiographical that story was for me, dealing with, you know, what Anya, the evolution that she goes through in one yeah. book was the evolution that I went through over the course of my life. And maybe one of the most deeply personal books I've ever written because of that. And maybe the one that I, like, broke down while writing more often than any other book. Wow. No, it was, I mean, there's that aspect too, to good fiction. The author is bearing his or her soul in some way, shape or form. And it wasn't, you know, that ending was not tried in the least. It was very real, you know, and what was building up in onions, it was just like, it was amazing. And just seeing how she went from like, like you said, the total adoration to, what ended up happening there was just, I was, I was just amazed with that. And but then how that final scene came to be between her and Violet, you know. Right. With two people from different. Yeah. Two totally the other side, each side of the fence. And reaching the same conclusion independently. Yeah. Um, trying to pull that off without it seeming contrived was one of the biggest challenges I've undertaken or, or put on myself as a writer um, and trying to compress Anya's really extreme character arc from one, ex- you know, from one polar uh, region to the other in the way she views her father in one book was also a big challenge. But that's what's been fun about the Sand series. It's just been setting myself like really difficult goals. Like mm-hmm. in the first book, I was trying to figure out if you could make the worst act of terrorism imaginable feel justified and feel like that was the good guy. And doing that with Vic was 
was a, a huge challenge. And I think I pulled off. Most people are like cheering for her as she's doing something that if it happened on, from the other side, we would just see that person as the worst human who's ever walked the face of the earth. And um, I don't know that readers really understand that that's what they're feeling, that they're, they're cheering on a terrorist act of unimaginable consequences. Yeah. But it, it should show how, when we don't understand how someone can cheer what we see as a reprehensible act, like we have to understand that their experiences are different from ours and that's how they are able to feel that, you know? Yeah. And it's again, whether you want to call it satirizing or if it's just a comment on society, how it works, all you have to do is, is make somebody, which has been done for eons, less than human, which makes it not a, it's no longer a crime to do something despicable to them. You see that very much in the United States, just within our own culture and other various subcultures, how it's easy to like make someone less than human. So it's okay to do whatever you're going to do to them. Yeah. Even if it's just being rude to them. Like I yeah. think um, the way we talk to people that we've uh, demonized, uh, we would never talk that way to friends, family, strangers, but if we can put them in a box um, of someone who doesn't deserve our respect and whether or not it harms them to be rude to them, it definitely harms us. Allowing that kind of negativity to flourish in, in your thoughts and your actions, it, it just leads people to ruin. And uh, it makes me sad to see how much of our discourse these days um, is, is a lot of self-harm. It's, it's unforced errors. It's just like watching people you know, pull the planks out of the, the floor of their own boats, thinking that it's going to hurt somebody else. And um, yeah, it's, uh, I hope we can get a handle on it. Cause I think it's, I think it's a bigger threat than a lot of the things that we talk about um, as the, the, the major threats to civilization. I think um, like our, our moral compass is probably the most important for us to keep track of. Yeah. And that's, like I said, that's bringing up this initial question, your, the morality integrity as an author. Now you talk about wayfinding, and on your website, I was looking at, you know, checking that out and seeing that. And just for those of you listening here, wayfinding is the ancient art of navigating by paying attention to the natural signs all around us. Ancient wayfinders use the stars, the wind, the currents, the migration of birds, and much more in order to settle the islands of the Pacific. So how has that influenced your writing and or your life? Uh, I mean, both tremendously. Um, it influenced like the sand series. Uh, even though this takes place in the future, it, these are very primitive in, in the way that they're surviving and living mm -hmm. uh, in a very primitive lifestyle. One, I find it fascinating how we assume primitive people were were stupid. Like we we don't understand how the Pacific Islanders could have settled, um, you know, the breadth of the Pacific. We we had this theory that they must have been lost at sea or drifted downwind on rafts. We don't understand how the Egyptians could have built the pyramids. Like they're, they must have had help from aliens or whatever. Like the reality is, these people in in um, prehistory were uh, just as smart as we were, if not smarter. Like some of the hominids who went extinct had bigger brain pans than we do. But for sure, early man and just humans two, three thousand years ago had the same intellectual capacity we do. They just had a different subset of knowledge to base it on. Right. But their creativity and their problem-solving skills were the same as ours. So if you have all day to try to figure out how to make the base of a pyramid perfectly level, you know, eventually someone realizes they can, we can dig a grid of trenches, fill it with water, and then chisel everything down to the level of the water, and then we have a perfectly level um, base for a pyramid. And um, all it takes is like, you know, one architect you know, a sleepless night to come up with this incredible innovation. And the same is true of the Pacific Islanders. Like they lived in close communion with the sea. They were incredible sailors and incredible navigators. Uh, they sailed out of sight of land and back to land over and over again. And they learned to recognize the signs of land from, from vast distances, even just the way clouds form. And assuming that they were ignorant is so bizarre. Like they were much smarter at that very specific thing than we are. Mm -hmm. So we now know that the Pacific was settled with deliberate navigation skills. And I think when we write 
stories and we put people out of time, whether it's in the distant future where things are, are um, harsh again yeah. or in the past, we have to make sure we don't make these people primitive just because their conditions were. They were, you know, their brains were as modern as ours are. And that's definitely changed the way I interact with cultures. I visited really remote islands all over the world where people are living in subsistence conditions. And it's worth remembering their sense of humor, their creativity, their capacity for deep thought and analysis and love is equal to ours. Mm -hmm. And, and um, I think it's worth reminding ourselves that uh, all the time when we're trying to understand different cultures and the, the past and the future. I get it. Yeah. On, um, so then on wayfinding, so is that like a, a personal philosophy of life now that you've adopted? Because that's obviously how wayfinders use that to, to navigate their life. But then is that also then affected your writing style or what you do and how you live your life or how's that tie in? Yeah, there, I, I wrote a nonfiction series um, called uh, wayfinding uh, that took that principle of navigating with natural signs and applied it to understanding um, human behavior mm -hmm. and evolutionary psychology. Uh, it's always fascinating to me uh, just watching myself and people around me, uh, how we behave that it, it seems like a lot of our um, confusion and some of our our strange behaviors come from the fact that we were um, meant for an environment that doesn't resemble the modern one. Like we evolved in a very different state yeah. than we find ourselves today. For instance, we should know everybody in our tribe. There shouldn't be strangers around us. Right. And that leads to a lot of weird uh, situations and confusions and anxieties and maladaptive behaviors. And so wayfinding for me became a way of thinking about, okay, is this behavior, is it maladaptive? Is it necessary? Is this a holdover from something that benefited humans thousands of years ago that no longer applies? And if it's no longer useful, like let's jettison it. Let's um, try to overcome it or, or, you know, just by understanding it, we can at least get some control over it. And uh, yeah, so for me, wayfinding became just a, a self-help principle that became so useful for myself. And in conversation with others, people are like, I, I can really get something out of that. So I, I just wrote them in a, a short series. I didn't do any marketing. I just put them out there for, for some friends who were requesting it. Mm -hmm. And they people ended up finding them and they ended up selling really well. So oh, that's um, good. Yeah, there's been a demand for more. But honestly, as soon as it started selling well, I got really self-conscious about the, I'm, I'm not a, uh, a, a, um, a guru of any stripe. So actually having eyeballs on it made me kind of shy about sharing my opinion about these things. I get it. Yeah. So I was just, I was just curious on this, on your writing style and any messaging you're, you're saying and stuff, but like we've already discussed and just the, just the frailty almost of, of morale because what's moral to me might be totally egregious to you and quite often is. And the only difference we have right now, which is maybe which, you know, it's obviously it's a big cycle recycle is happening right now, but on your books that I've read technology advanced to a point where those tendencies of, of um, putting people in the pens and keeping them separate and boxing them off and making it okay to do stuff to them. Before, it started off, you could throw rocks at them, then you had bows and arrows, then you had bullets. But now, when you have the big bombs, the atomic bombs, those go off, you just wipe out like, like what happened. There are whole cities or whole nations at a time, and then it just resets everything. But that, that mental propensity to, to hate somebody that's not like you, um, became a liability when the technology or the technology is what became the liability where first it was like, Hey, this is great with all the different technological revolutions that were happening. It then became the ultimate, um, destruction. Yeah. I think, uh, technology seems to progress a little quicker than our moral progress. For sure. And it almost seems like we have to develop the technology that shows us like there has to be some global consequence to the technology before we update our moral compass. For instance, um, chemical warfare has been used throughout human history. Anytime we can create something that destroys the enemy, there's no question. We create it, we use it. Mm -hmm. And World War I really changed that. And 
then it was so horrific that even nations who were enemies to one another agreed, like, we do not use these things. And if you do, we, the rest of us collectively gets together and we will punish you. And it's been pretty effective. Yeah. At, um, there has been, there have been chemical attacks since then, but it hasn't been a runaway escalation of a type of warfare. And the same with nuclear attacks. You know, the United States is the only country that's used nukes in a belligerent fashion. Now, thousands of nukes have been set off in our atmosphere for testing, mm -hmm. um, which, which to me puts the question to like how, you know, if you put off a hundred nukes, the whole world would go extinct. We've, we've, we've set off like thousands of nukes and, um, and, and done that to our environment and atmosphere with, uh, almost no effect. Uh, well, some effect, but nothing like the apocalypse that we imagine. Sure. Um, but since that, since those nukes went off, like there's been all kinds of treaties and, um, inspectors and attempts to stop the proliferation of these things. So it seems like we have to go too far before we learn a lesson. And yeah. I, I think that could be our downfall in the end, <laughs> because if we ever develop, if we developed a button right now that if you press it, it would just kill everybody. And there was no doubt that that was the outcome of pressing that button. If every human had access to that button, someone would press it in under a second. Sure. Knowing full well what it did. And we will develop that button one day. Like it's just a question of what that technology looks like, whether it's CRISPR enabled, you know, bioengineered uh, viruses, which can, you know, in wool, they uh, seed the entire world before they activate. So you don't have to worry about having a time to respond or de develop immunity or any of that. If we ever develop something like that, which might be a thousand years off, uh, if our moral compass is what it is today, then we go extinct. Mm -hmm. And I think the challenge ahead of us is to start developing moral technology faster than we're developing technology technology. Right. Okay, now we've got, obviously this is the Writers of the Future podcast. So I think there's a lot more than just aspiring writers listening to this with one and a half million listens per episode. <laughs> But it'd be nice if there were that many aspiring writers. <laughs> I think there probably is. Yeah. Um, a lot of people with stories to tell. So you started, I mean, your, your timeline, let's address this. We, we went to a lot more detail when we, on our first interview that we did uh, at the beginning of 2022. But how does your timeline go as, as an author? I know you've done so many different things, and I can definitely see your experience as a sailor in sand that's like rings loud and clear but what's your like your trajectory how you went from coming out of your mother's womb to becoming the the international best-selling author and halfway completed with your goal of sailing the world uh the the reader's digest version is uh as an avid reader as a really young age my mom taught me to read before i even started you know kindergarten and falling in love with books and becoming uh, just devourer of stories, I started dreaming of writing my own stories. And this started when I was like 12, 13 years old. I, I would write a few chapters of a book, and it was almost all like fan fiction mm -hmm. of something I'd read recently. Um, but for 20 years, my dream of writing a book eluded me. I would start and never finish. Uh, and I believe I was 32 when I wrote my first book. And once I knew I could do it, it just started a, a, an outpouring of two or three books a year. Uh, my first book was published with a very small press called Noralites Press out of um, Illinois. My experience with them, they were using self-publishing technology to publish books on a very small scale, print on demand for print books and uh, eBooks, which mm -hmm. was just launching at the time. It's right. like 2009, 2010. So I decided like uh, I could do what they're doing and have more control and, and keep more of the money and have, you know, uh, control of the pricing and things like that, which were important to me. So I got the rights back to that book and started publishing my own books. And I never dreamed of making a living at it. I just thought if I sold a few and had a few fans, um, paid a, you know, my power bill every month <laughs> with my books, I'd be happy. And I was doing that for the first four or five novels I wrote. And when I wrote Wool and published that for 99 cents, that was the story that really went viral and, and changed the course of my life in a huge way. It became a New York Times bestseller, um, 
got a film deal with Ridley Scott, which later became a TV deal with AMC and Apple. And we've now filmed uh, 10 episodes, which will come out in uh, 2023, or I guess this year by the time uh, yeah. you hear this. And uh, yeah, it just set me up financially where I didn't have to work a day job and I could just concentrate on my writing, started doing book tours. And then this is all self-publishing at the time. And then I started getting offers from major publishers and the, we said no, my agent and I just said no to everything. Even when the offers got into the seven figures, we were doing well on our own and having fun. We were doing foreign deals. We did deals in 40 countries around the world before we really got a, a, an American publisher to say yes to our crazy demands. We were asking like, let's do print only. We'll keep all the ebook and all the audiobook, And you give us like a big advance, do just the print. And we get the rights back in seven years. I mean, it was insane what we were asking. And we finally had a publisher say yes. And that started a process of doing deals with publishers where um, I get the rights back to my my books now like every five years and can sell them to new publishers or take them back and self-publish. And uh, yeah, so I've published in every way possible, I think, um, between all the 40 plus deals we've done around the world. And uh, actually, the number of deals is probably like in the hundreds now because we've done multiple books in over 40 countries and learned a lot and learned what I like and don't like about different types of publishing. And um, this year, I think I have five books I'm ready to publish this year. And I'm going self-publishing with all of them because for me, it's the most fun and the most freedom. And uh, Is it the most work as well? It's the most work. Um it's yeah, by far the most work because um, with pub- with publishers, I can just hand in a manuscript. But it's it's sh- it was shocking to me how much work publishers can be. Like uh, you you wouldn't believe the crazy things you have to go through with publishers to get them to update metadata in a way that's going to help everybody, or help them make better cover art, or convince them that that some deal they're saying no to is beneficial to them, but their lawyers are involved. And uh, I, I've had some really weird stuff mm-hmm. uh, just just recently that has convinced me that self-publishing is is less uh, headache and heartache, even if the uh, even if you have a partner doing some work. Sometimes they're so bad at it that you'd rather just do it yourself. Yeah, yeah. Because I noticed in, in across the sand, um, you've and in, in sand, you've got William Morrow is the uh, is the uh, imprint of Harper Collins. So that's definitely not KDP. And uh, so that's like a, a one-off thing like now, or is this because you're going to have your third book coming out, which you said now you're going to go back to the self-publishing, the five different chapters yeah. or sections. Yeah, which I'll probably do with these books as well when I get the rights back to them. Um, yeah, I was with um, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt when I did both of these books, but then they were bought by HarperCollins since uh, the sequel came out. Mm-hmm. And so they've reprinted the first book now with their name on it. Yeah. So I've never actually done a publishing deal with HarperCollins, but they have the rights to all, you know, all of my uh, U.S. Um, traditionally published books right now. And they, I love HarperCollins. I read a lot of their books. I've been a, a big fan of theirs as a bookseller over the years. Mm-hmm. But they're not going to do the kind of contracts that my agent and, and myself expect they don't have the flexibility. They're just too big of a publisher. And if they did those deals, other authors would expect them. So I understand where they're coming from with not wanting to do them. Mm -hmm. And honestly, it makes me thrilled that uh, we don't have to make the choice now when the rights come back to us, we'll take them immediately and self-publish everything. So you're definitely um, continuing to extol them their virtues of self-publishing. Oh yeah. It's um, I mean, I, I would I would still be working in a bookstore if I had traditionally published everything. You just the the financial benefits and the uh, the ability to publish in several different genres and a, and at a quick pace. Um, most publishers would just not allow it, and, and to publish shorter stories. Most of my breakout works have been short stories and serialized fiction and things that people say there's no market for, and I believed otherwise. And publishers who you know, think that that's, there's no market there. We're obviously wrong. And I was, and my, my, me and my, my readers were correct. You know, I knew how I wanted stories delivered if I was a reader and there were millions of other people out there like me mm-hmm. and, and having that flexibility and creativity is, is, 
you couldn't put a price on it. And it turns out, guess what? You actually can earn more money that way. Yeah. You know? Well, it's good because I mean, having to read two books to prepare for this, this interview, like, Oh my word. Okay, good. So the last, I apologize for that. I'm no, so that's, I love this. I love the stories. I had to be prepared to it. Cause I, it's just, it, it's made such a world of difference knowing what I'm talking about with, with an author and just having my own perspective. And I can actually talk to you about it. Like, what were you thinking when you said this, or I get this out of it and just find out that the author goes, well, yeah, you got that. You know, it's like, I really enjoy doing that. And just, I feel it's much more of an engaging conversation, but it's also important for the public listening to this, that there is method to what you're trying to do then what you're trying to accomplish. And, you know, how do you, put yourself into a story. How do you do that? How do you successfully accomplish this? And then, and then they should of course read these books to be able to see what we're talking about right now, how you accomplish that. Because if they're going to have a goal for, even if they just have, I want to tell my story, they need to see how other people have done it to make it. So somebody wants to read it. And when you're done with volume two saying, all right, number three, you know, you need, are you ready for, are you ready for number three? I am absolutely ready for it. Yeah. It's like, and I like the speed, you know, it's, um, the rhythm to your storytelling is, is really fun and it's a good length for me, you know, part of it because, yeah. um, you know, I have so much to read, but for me, I can, it, it makes me when I'm done with it, like, okay, what's next? You know, I'm, yeah. I have trouble with the, with the huge hundred plus thousand word books. I just, my, I have so many diff- different t- books going at the same time. And then it's one of those long ones. I can't, you know, I can't just get through it. it it's, it's long because these are, these are what, 60, 70,000? Yeah, in that range. Yeah. I think maybe 75 tops. Yeah. And, I, and, and the way you write, like you can make a book feel longer or shorter, I think. Um, I, my goal as a writer is when someone finishes a book, they want to go read another book. And it doesn't even have to be my book. Yeah. Um, I don't want them to get off that train. And some books are exhausting in a way that you have to take a break from right from reading uh, after you finish them. And that's, I think that's the worst thing we can do yeah. for each other in this, in this industry. Yeah. And what you did on what you seem to do on at least what definitely on across the sand, you know, you've got your, the books over and then you've got your acknowledgement and then there's another page, you know, that, yeah. I was doing that. I think before Marvel was doing their teasers at the end of the uh, yeah, at the end of their movies after the, at after the, the trailer the, after their uh, yeah credits yeah, and, and it's a very deliberate decision. I think you know epilogues sometimes just come too quickly. Mm-hmm. Like there's supposed to be a passage of time before you read this bit, but it's just turning a page like any other chapter. And I think putting some end material there, uh, and it's also if you don't find it you know, no harm, This the book still ended. But if you do find it, you feel like you're in on a secret. And um, I've, I've enjoyed that. I've done that in several books yeah. now. No, that was really good how you did that. And, like, and that just kind of like sensed me, I've got to read number three now. You know, I, I had the idea that that's what was happening, you know, but now you just put it there. And um, that's the best feeling when you – and it's the hardest thing to pull off too. I love when I'm reading a book and I put something together right when the author wants me to put it together, you yeah. know, just a paragraph or a page before it's revealed, but not too soon. Yeah. And I, I used to read a lot of crime and uh, like detective novels. And those are the authors that have, it's almost like conduct, like constructing a uh, crossword puzzle. You have to really put together this puzzle box in a way that the solutions come at the right time mm-hmm. or it's dissatisfying. And something I think if you read a lot of that genre, you can incorporate into any other genre you write, whether it's literary or fantasy or sci-fi. And it's something actually that I loved. You know, you and I talk about Battlefield Earth every right. time we chat because it's one of my favorite books. But I feel like Hubbard was the master at help at letting you have a eureka moment right before the characters do so that you feel like it was yours. But it's because he, you, you've planted all the right ideas and seeds. We know how stories go. And so you have this you know, idea of like what that dragon that's being sent off is going to devour and how, what, what that's going to mean before it starts happening. It makes you feel clever yeah. you know, when you are a, a step ahead. You know? Yeah, and definitely he was uh, brilliant at that. Have you read any of his other stories at all? 
the I'm going to start the um, – I never read the um, – what's the one that's like 13 books in the series? The Miss, Mission Earth? Mission Earth, yeah. That's the next one I'm diving into. Oh, good. Yeah, I was going to um, ask you to so no, do that and get your take on that. I think it's in. I think it's in that little package I sent you. Yeah, it is. I'm going to pick that up and start working on that now. Oh, good. Yeah, it's because um, I really am interested in your take on that because that was. He wrote that right a year after he wrote Battlefield Earth, and that was also written. I think in uh, it was 1.2 million words, and he he had his two typewriters that he wrote. He wrote one until it broke, and then he'd send that to repair, and then had the next typewriter going. He wrote that and. Um, just over eight months, and um, I would love to know how prolific he would be with modern tools of technology, or if the distractions of the modern world would destroy his productivity. But yeah. uh, there are some writers working today who are that prolific, yeah, and publishing a book a month, and I'm I'm in awe of it. Yeah, he was. Um, he would. I mean, he was his his speed was. Some people go, oh my gosh, but he talked about other authors that were more prolific than he was. You know, he's just said, okay, good. Well, you had to write if you're going to eat, you know, so yep. he just, and he just, he would write um, three hours a day, three days a week. And that's how he did his 100,000 a month output and um, 100,000 words a month and 15 different pen names they would use to, because uh, he ran out of magazines yeah, to sell to. Yeah, publishers didn't. It's so it's so backwards. Like now, they realize that the more name recognition and the more content, the better. But back in the day, even I think James Patterson was one of the guys who really broke the mold on that. Where he publishers started publishing two books a year under his name. That was considered groundbreaking back when he first did it. Yeah, and um, you know, even like Stephen King used to write under a pseudonym to publish more. And now we know it's it's the opposite. Readers are hungry for their favorite authors. And if, if you had a Stephen King book coming out once a month, readers would gobble it all up. Sure. Um, so we've, we've changed our attitude towards that. But again, it's, it's, you know, publishers take a long time to come around to common sense. Yeah. It's just, that's the way it is there. So, so uh, we're getting ready for this, for this interview. You talked about authors, you know, it's like you got, we go back to golden age or the earlier authors that you read, um, that prepared you for your life, that influenced you in your life, not only just your writing style, but just your your thought process, the way you operate. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, you're. I think you were asking about what authors have influenced me, and you know, the natural answer to that question is how they've influenced my writing and my imagination and my storytelling. But um, when I was when I was really young, I got into um, fantasy. Uh, big time. I read all the Forgotten Realms and all the Dungeons and Dragons stories. And uh, it was a while I was like my most religious. I grew up in a very religious part of the country in a religious household. We went to you know church every day in youth group and went to um, a revival every year for 10 days that uh, just very religious upbringing. Mm-hmm. And when I was around 11 or so, I was in the fantasy section of a Walden books. And as you know, all the sci-fi and fantasy is all put in the same ghetto of the, the bookstore. Right. And anything that's good in that, in that, in those genres, of course, are pulled out and put into literature. And that way we can make sure that everything in that section, we can just say it's all terrible. Yeah. And I was gobbling up a book a day out of that section. Um, and because they were published together, I felt like I ran out of, I think I'd read every forgotten realms and dungeons and dragons book that was out. And I asked a bookseller, like what else? And they handed me Ender's Game, and I was—I saw a spaceship, and I, this wasn't the kind of stuff that I that I read. But it, they recommended it had some awards badges on it. And it was just a couple years after it come out, and uh, I went home and devoured it. And I was like, "Oh my god, this is so much better than what I've been reading to me." Mm-hmm. And nothing against fantasy, but I went straight to sci-fi and read everything I could. And it can't be coincidence that this was the time of my life where I got away from religion and started reading science books as well. And looking back on it now, it's like a direct parallel. Like I left the world of fantasy in the past and magic and superstition and started reading about people solving problems with technology and with social engineering and, and other methods. And I was hooked. I, at the same time that I started gobbling up all this science fiction, I started reading more science. I um, kept going to youth group the rest of 
my school years because I enjoyed all the the um, volunteering that we did, the Habitat for Humanity, and the um, the cool stuff we got to do around town. But I became a complete non-believer, and so when I say those authors like Asimov and Card and uh, Heinlein, they changed my life in more ways than just the way that I write my own stories. They really gave me a, a path to understanding the world that didn't require believing what I was told, but thinking for myself. It's funny you say those three authors, they're all three separate, like Asimov, totally, you know, not religious. You got Heinlein, who wrote extensively about religion, and Card, who's very religious. Very religious, and yeah. So it's three totally different people you just named there that with religion, but their their whole philosophies in their books. Yeah, they didn't lead me to non-religion because they were writing about an absence of religion. Uh, it's the, the kinds of stories they were writing showed me a path to better answers. Um, I think even there are a lot, of, one of my best friends is, um, two of my best friends are very religious. Um, one's an ordained minister and one's a born again Christian. And they're uh, two of my closest friends. And one is such an adherent of the scientific method um, that's guided his whole life mm -hmm. and his whole career uh, has been uh, involved in the sciences. And that's what all, a lot of these uh, science fiction writers have in common, no matter how their dogma aligns, they believe in rational thought. And that might lead you to religion if, if that's how you get there. And one of my friends was led to religion through rational thought rather than it being handed down through his environment. So I, I think our religiosity can be separate from our, the, the way we try to understand the world and piece together the facts of our, of our condition. And that's what changed for me. I was I grew up in an environment where you didn't have you weren't allowed to have questions. You were right. told the answers. And these books taught me that you should seek and you should question. You should usurp authority. Uh, you know, I mean, Ender, as religious as Card is, it's hard to read that book and not be pushed to like want to tear down established institutions and come up with a better way of doing things. And that's you know liberalism at its heart. Mm -hmm. So I think he's, I think he's uh, religious out of circumstance and not, uh, I, don't, I don't know. I, I know his son and not him. At I, know, all. I know him quite well. But I, I think, uh, I think if you reroll the dice on uh, Orson 10 times, I think more than half those times you're going to get someone as uh, skeptical as I am. Yeah. He's, um, I like him a lot and he's, he definitely had, I mean, his, his take on life and on people and stuff, he's, I love him dearly. And he, he, he's just so, he's been one of our best judges for the contest because he so loves helping the aspiring writer. He's the biggest, you know, his workshop. Um, and he, I mean, I, I wanted to become a writer because of him. When I read that this guy was from North Carolina, which is where I grew up, and he had won all these awards and he wrote my favorite character. I mean, Ender's Game is my favorite book. Uh, I, I would never become a writer without him. And, you know, I, I, I know people who judge. If, if you knew everything about all your favorite creatives and you judge their creativity by their, uh, what you perceive as their faults, you would have no art that you could enjoy. Mm -hmm. uh, you dig deep enough on anybody, you're going to come up with something you disagree with. Like if you saw the way uh, that I you know, mash the food together on my Thanksgiving plate. People, I'm never going to read another one of his books. And I'm sure, you know, there's something, there's something bad about all of us that, that you could uh, find fault in and then say, um, I'm not going to be a fan. And I've never let that get in the way of my appreciation of art. Yeah. Um, one, of my, one of my favorite writers, Philip K. Dick, was probably certif certifi certifiably insane and I don't hold that against him. Instead, I appreciate his art and 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 admire the torment that he must have gone through to to have the wild imagination that he had. Yeah, he was um, definitely wild imagination indeed. So, what advice do you have? Because we're got down to the last like three, four, five minutes here. What advice do you have for the aspiring writer now who either fits and starts, they don't quite get going, but what motivates you? as a writer? Because obviously if somebody wants to be a writer, you know, something that helps you get up and come up with your new ideas or what 
sparks you along or anything like that? I, I would say two pieces of advice that I gave to myself that I think would help most people who are having a hard time writing a book. Uh, the first is um, when you sit down to write, just relax. Don't try to write in an authorial voice. Don't try to write like anyone that you've read. Don't try to sound like something that you're not. Write in as clear and flowing and easy a prose as you can imagine. There are so many best-selling authors out there whose prose just reads like an email. You don't have to have a clever turn of phrase. Those will come naturally every now and then. Just settle down, write in your own voice, and tell a story as clearly as you can. Uh, the second one that I think we don't appreciate enough is that feel free to write sloppy. You get to the end before you come back and polish things and make them better. And you can go back over a book a dozen times if you want to improve it. But the the, the biggest enemy to publishing is not finishing a story and seeing, seeing it all the way through to the last chapter. And those two pieces of advice kind of both work towards that same end, which is to convince you to get to the end of the book in as a casual a manner as possible, and then work on improving it. But I, I think the hardest thing and the biggest hang-up for a lot of authors is that they never seem to finish their story, and, and that's the most important step. Absolutely. Now, when you write a book, do you do beginning, end, middle, or do you plan it out, or do you have, or are you just like litter rip? I, I brainstorm for a while, sometimes years, but um, at least for weeks or months, and write all kinds of notes and various um, bits of dialogue or plot beats, character development, what their arc is, what the theme is. Getting the theme down early is really important. Mm -hmm. And uh, once I have enough of those pieces in place, I kind of know the whole story. I know the, know the last scene in my head, at least, whether I write it or not. And then once I have all that in place, I can just start from the beginning and connect all the dots. Yeah, because that was... I was just curious that that last scene there was very like it was very real. So I wasn't sure if that was kind of like everything just the story told and ended in that direction, or if he knew that's how you're going to end it, and then you it just it logically flowed to that, and then you're able to put your whole emotion into that, which made it all the more impactful. Yeah, there's two. I don't know. There's two kind of climaxes in the book: one with the girls, and one with um, with Rob, and mm -hmm. both. I had in mind before I started writing that these two things had to happen. Okay. And um, uh, yeah, it's, it's so much easier writing a story when you know what the, the climax is. For sure. So again, that story we've been talking about is the first two books in this series. It's um, Sand and Across the Sand. So how does somebody, that's what right now what I'm recommending people read. So where do they go to find your books? Um, I'm seeing them in bookstores as I travel around. I always pop in and sign copies. Um, online booksellers have them. Uh, they're in audio, ebook, print. I think some overseas uh, readers have had trouble finding them. That's been one of the challenges of working with a publisher is their distribution isn't quite as good as you know having ebooks that are available everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, if you search them, you should should be able to find them. Pretty pretty ubiquitous. Good. So. And then your website? Yeah, it's just youhowie.com. I do some blogging and writing there. I have some advice to writers that you can find. Uh, and I'm you know, around on social media, so feel free to ask questions and drop a line. Love hearing from readers and writers. That's great. So this has been, uh, as I knew it would be, so much fun. And after reading the books, I knew I had to have these talk, this talk with you just to get my inside skinny on what was going on in that head. Thanks. Well, one... A uh, piece of news: We're we're doing a deal for Sand for TV now, so uh, might go into development. Um, and we've got two shows coming out in in twenty three this year. Uh, Wool is coming out on Apple Plus, and um, Beacon twenty three, another book that was released in five parts as a self published book, is coming out later this year. So uh, two seasons of that have been filmed, and one season of Wool. So it's weird. The three books that all I released in five parts have done by far the best as books, and now are being adapted for TV. So that's very good. Um, yeah, this also makes it really easy to serialize if you've already serialized it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, great. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network, where you can find these podcasts as well. 
Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the US, Canada, the UK, Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. We are especially appreciative of our, of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation has been making delicious milk products for over a century and is still going strong. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Hugh. Thank you, John.